Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. And welcome to episode 0000120 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James and I will be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you from Radio City Docklands. And as we know, Wurundjeri country is where Radio City Docklands resides, and that is the land of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respect to their elders past and present, and I remind us all that this always was and always will be. Aboriginal land. Thank you to Vaughan for uh, another excellent episode of Double Bounce, another great follow-up from his Radiothon, sh- Radiothon show last week. Uh, he just keeps bringing the goods week in, week out. So thank you once again, Vaughnie, for that. He'll be back next Tuesday from 4 o'clock. Now, it's good to be back to uh, regular programming after last week's Radiothon show. And I must say, it's been another cracking Radiothon by all accounts. We're kind of in between 2019 and last year's record-breaking Radiothon in terms of uh, the subscriptions and numbers that we've been getting. So um, that's fantastic. Let's keep it going. So don't forget, even though we won't be banging on about it as much across the grid uh, from here on in, remember, you have until the 6th of October to subscribe to the station or your favourite show within the station and still be in the running for a suite of fabulous prizes. I must say, I've got the pledge monitor open here, just in case anyone uh, sends any through during the show, and um, I'll do my best to to read them out. Now back to uh, the order of business uh, for tonight and uh, beyond. Sadly, there's been another Aboriginal death as a result of uh, COVID, and more than 700 people have contracted the virus since June. 700 Aboriginal people, that is. And epidemiologists predict that number could grow to 1,000 any time soon. So given what we know about this dreadful thing, uh, we're likely to see more deaths across the Aboriginal community. And um, I hope I'm wrong about that, but the numbers um, speak for themselves, unfortunately. But what it does mean is that there will be also more hospitalisations in New South Wales in particular, and that's problematic because the health system there is already being stretched. And even the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, amidst the worst, is yet to come when it comes to hospitalisations uh, across the community up there. It's one of the few times she's been straight with people up there around the virus. And while we're doing much better in terms of vaccination rates amongst Rob, um, amongst mob down here, we're still nowhere near the rate of double doses in the Aboriginal community to even come close to taking our foot off the pedal when it comes to vaccine vaccinations. It's why we must continue to do to go where people live when it comes to vaccines. We need to have things like the bus in Shepparton, the Jabba the bus they're calling it, which uh, goes out to communities and vaccinates them where they are and they can do up to 200 people a day with that bus alone. It'd be great to see further outreach services undertake that as well in, um, you know, country areas, regional areas and areas of low socioeconomic status. We need to outreach, we need to, outreach to those uh, who are vaccine hesitant, uh, largely because of the appalling communication around various vaccines and their rollout since the vaccination rollout started. Remember, it's September And we shouldn't even be having this conversation when it comes to Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people aged 55 and over were supposed to be part of the Tier 1B 
group as outlined at the start of the year by the federal government. If the rollout had gone out as planned, the vast majority of Aboriginal people across the country should or would have been vaccinated by now. Instead, we find ourselves witnessing the unfolding tragedy in Wilcannia and Dubbo, which raises another issue, and that's around vaccine equity. While millions of doses are being pumped into arms of people in Sydney, and rightly so, it's clear that distribution is uneven among regional areas and different socioeconomic groups. So we need to remind ourselves as our political leaders bump up the freedom rhetoric around the 70 and 80% vaccination targets, we have to remind ourselves and understand that this is not as simple as that. While the majority of the population will be vaccinated probably in the November, some, some areas October, in terms of states, there will be areas where groups in our society will have nowhere near the same coverage as other parts of our society. So we need to think about the plan for that and we need to keep on our political leaders to make sure that they understand that nothing is equitable in, in this society and vaccine rollouts is the same and there is something they can do about that. But um, coming up on tonight's show, uh, we, we return to the Murray-Darling Basin where we once again speak to Taddy Taddy man Brendan Kennedy on what needs to be done to restore cultural flows to Aboriginal communities all over the basin. Uh, we need to remind ourselves that we are the driest continent on earth and there is equity in water as well. So we'll speak to him about that. And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Gunai Manaro and Gunti Jamara man, Paul Payton. He is the CEO of the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations. They've just recently launched a Victorian Traditional Owner Cultural Landscape Strategy. So we'll find out what that means from the man himself. So we'll be talking land and water on the show tonight, two central elements to what it means to be Aboriginal. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, we shouldn't need to be reminded that we live on the driest inhabited continent on Earth. Water is a precious resource. We need to do as much as we can to use it wisely, but also equitably, something that simply hasn't been done since the evasion around the rivers like the Murray or Dungala, as my people, the Yorta Yorta people call it. Um, and it has really, over time, become more no more than a series of ponds, leaving very little for environmental flows and cultural flows. So what is to be done about restoring these flows to the ancient wetlands that have been neglected across the basin for years? Well, who better to ask than a friend of the show, Brendan Kennedy. Brendan was born at Rubblevale on Taddy Taddy country and is a descendant of the Taddy Taddy Waddy Waddy and Muddy Muddy tribal lands and language groups. He's seen up close the impact mismanagement and the action has had on the river and the surrounding wetlands and has advocated for increased ownership of the basin for First Nations groups for years and years. And I'm very pleased to say that Brendan is on the line with us now. Brendan, welcome back to the mission. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, let's start with uh, your beautiful part of the world and um, in particular the Margoya Lagoon, which is one of the victims around the inequity of water supply and distribution along the Murray. What is the cultural significance of that lagoon to your people? Uh, yeah, well, Magoya Lagoon is part of our, our Murray River, Milu, as we call it, down further downstream, Ngala up, upstream, and so all the nations, Munster nations will have a different name for the 
for the river, but it's yep. still the same river. Um, but yeah, Magoya Lagoon is a pretty significant wetland. Um, that's a, a part of the Murray River floodplains and um, just just outside of Robinvale. And yeah, it looks pretty significant. Um, it's where some of the last some of our last Tati Tati ancestors were recorded. Um, still there in the 1880s. Um, so yeah, remnant survivors of our Tati Tati nation um, from the ancestors. So it's an ancestral place, Magoya Lagoon. It's um, it's the old it's the old Mo River um, Milu course. And um, yeah, there's high cliffs there, so it's where the the old river flowed um, prior to 30,000 30, years ago. Um, so yeah, it's still it's um, a very special place for Tari Tari, and um, yeah, it, it causes us some you know great pains to to see Magoya um, suffer from the lack of water. And Magoria is one of those places along along the river, and there are many places like that that rely on the natural environmental floods that have taken place for millennia upon millennia. Uh, but now it's a place that has suffered as a result of a restriction to environmental flows and cultural flows. Um, how is the lagoon, lagoon faring up at the moment? Is it is it um, anywhere near it needs to be? I understand it has to go. The, the river itself has to go over a floodplain before it fills into the lagoon itself. When was the last time that happened? Well, that happened in two thousand and sixteen when we did have some flooding through the through this whole area, this um this mid Murray area, mm. and so um. Yeah, it's well at the moment. There's it's, we're having a high, um, what's called unregulated flows in the system at the moment. There's water moving, um, but yeah, generally since yeah since they started to um, really commodify and 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 use water as a as a, as a on the market, you know, in terms of. Mm. The water market and the over management of water um, since the nineteen seventies onwards to now, it's places um, like Nagoya, you know, wetlands and lagoons and lakes and creeks um, that just don't get the water because it's you know it's held in the in the river, the main river channel, and so um, you know the the, air, the areas where that river water would flow naturally into these lagoons and wetlands and floodplains have been blocked off. Um, so, yeah, the water stays in, in the river for, for irrigation purposes. And what the market doesn't realise, of course, Brendan, is that uh, those wet areas and, and, and those lagoons um, are not only essential for uh, wildlife, of course, but they are central to uh, Aboriginal people and, and, and mobs like yours, the Taddy Taddy. It's uh, core to, to your identity. They are sacred places. They are places that provided food and nourishment because um, fishing in a lagoon is much easier than fishing on the main channel. Um, this is what you're talking about when you're talking about the return of cultural flows to to the river. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 all of these, all of our lakes and lagoons and wetlands and they're the organs, mm. organs, and and the rivers are the are the veins, and and the creeks. And so the organs need that lifeblood, you know, that water 
come out, and and that's where our, our identity and our culture is is, is central. Um, it, it's reliant and on on these organ sites, these um, wetlands, um, lakes, and um, so you know once they they deprive these sites of water of life, then that you know that the flow on effect is onto our people, to our health, our well-being, our spirituality, our connection, and um, our culture. Um, so that's it's it's critical. But um, yeah, I suppose the importance to to places like Magoya is um, it's where our people come off the river and and will live around the lagoons um, yeah. because we allow the river for all the animals to go to the river. So we don't take up the river frontage. We allow the animals to go down to the river. But we come up mm. to the lagoons and the lakes. And so also you know, these areas are they're like big giant air conditioning, air conditioner areas. Like they're nice and cool, you know, because yeah. these are wetlands. These these you know, these are where in the summertime it's the coolest places to be for our people. And then in yeah, the anyone, wintertime, in the winter, it's also the warmest places for our people to be. Anyone that's been up around you know, your part of the world, Brendan, you know, Robinvale, know how hot <laughs> places like Robinvale can get, get in the summer. So, you know, having even remnants of that uh, lagoon around um, in summertime and uh, in autumn can provide real comfort to, to local people up there. Um, you were um, an integral part of the federally funded National Cultural Flows Research Project, which is now complete, um, and your mob played, played a significant role in the development of that uh, project and the research. What does the research tell us out of that? Yeah, so the research around cultural flows, the National Cultural Flows Research Program, the, the government funded that. Mm. Um, and But it's really only been, well, my people, Taddy Taddy, where the Victorian government have just put in a little bit of funding to help us develop a cultural flows management plan for Magoya. So we're the only traditional owner group that's been afforded you know, assistance apart from where we're part of the Mildred, Murray, Lower Darling Rivers, Indigenous Nations cultural flows program. But essentially, um, you know, the, com- the, the governments have really, that's as far as they've gone. And they haven't fully resourced and support the ongoing viability of cultural flows going forward. And just to sort of describe cultural flows, so cultural flows are water entitlements that are legally and beneficially owned by the First Nations, and, and they are of a um, uh, sufficient and adequate quantity and quality to improve the spiritual, cultural, natural, environmental, social, and economic conditions of those First Nations. So it, it's it's totally different than environmental flows. Yeah. Now, environmental flows are water. That's government water. It's owned by the government, uh, the Commonwealth and, and, and Victorian government. The view. So that's you know, and they deliver it in a way that that is totally has no um, parallels to cultural flow. Um, mm-hmm. They deliver it in a way, and and they deliver it from a Western perspective. Deliver environmental flows. Cultural flows comes from our people, and it's and it's our people um, delivering water and allowing water to be on country for our people and for our country. 
Now, the former Water Minister, David Littleproud, back in 2018, uh, promised um, $40 million. But there's uh, speculation growing that the government could spend that money on what should be around cultural flows um, on other water ownership, such as employment programs. How confident are you that the government will allocate this money as originally intended? Uh, not very confident, no. And yeah, it's, right. It's, you know, originally they they made a promise to our people, and and when this that forty million dollars was going to open up a door for our people to walk through and and have an impact, be a part of the water sector, the water market, water ownership, and so they basically locked the door on us again and um, kept that money. And they, they they don't want our people to be a part of of um, you know, inside the water market and being water owners. That's obvious. Um, otherwise, we would have water by now for our people. So no, and for them to now turn around and say we're going to use it for jobs, we're going to use it for other um, you know other, other areas within our um, you know within our, our Aboriginal um, communities. You know, well, that, that money was meant for water. Mm. You know, it was meant for us to secure some water to say, well, hey, we own water. You know, and so that gives us a, a basis for, for for building more water ownership for the nations throughout the Murray-Darling Basin. So they, they've really made sure that we don't get we don't get inside their boys' club as far as controlling water. Keith Pitt is the uh, current resources and water minister. He's a big coal guy. Um, have you sought an audience with him, or has he reached out to you in relation to this? Yeah, our um, confederation, Milton, and, um, and our chairperson of Grant Rigney has been he's been vocal and vocal. He's they've written to Pitt, uh, contacted his office, um, and it's the same with Northern Basin Aboriginal Nations and Band. Um, you know, they, so our people, are, we've been asking the questions and continuing to put forward our case. We've developed our own models, our own models of, of um, being able to, you know, uh, use that funding to, to access water and develop projects. But still, no, they've just they've turned their back on us. And so, yeah, and, and I'm not confident that... Um, we've only got how I mean, we've got nine months, I think, to get that, yeah. that money out, of yeah. the, out the door. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's just uh, another example, um, isn't it, Brendan? That this is a an issue that is, is that is a problem for for First Nations people. So First Nations people have taken upon themselves to find a solution, do the research, and present that to government on a platter. And yet again, as we see across a whole gamut of portfolio areas, the government is refusing to do anything about it. It's all about platitudes and not about action for, for, for this government. Is that the way you would see it? Yeah, 100%. That's exactly how it is. It's always been like that. And then, you know, when you hear them, they fly our flag and they acknowledge yeah. the country and, and all of these, and then it's still, you know, Denying our people water rights, um, and they're, they're even you know they even put it to us now. Well, perhaps you you know we'd have to buy our own water back. You know that's like paying for our own ransom. You know? <laughs> paying for our own ransom, we have to go and buy our own water back. Now they don't make this hard for the mainstream Australian. 
water holders, um, water entitlement holders and farmers and you know, the mainstream don't have to go through what we have to go through. And, you know, they're making us, we've got a, instead of meeting each other halfway, they're making us, um, you know, 90% of the way. And uh, even then they still won't, um, you know, not showing. Well, we haven't heard from Minister Pitt's office um, at all in recent times around, you know, uh, fulfilling that commitment that they made in regards to $40 million for First Nations to um, access water innovation. And it just seems seems to me that um, uh, even the, well, it doesn't seem to me, I know that the, the Victorian government has been less than helpful in terms of um, environmental flows in particular, and they've reallocated 2 billion litres of additional water savings to irrigators. And, of course, you know, that's uh, another kick in the guts for the Taddy Taddy and other First Nation basin communities. Yeah, it is. It, is. it was and it is and it continues to be a kick in the guts. And, you know, in Victoria in particular, you know, there's, we now have self-determination strategies in place. Bukunyali, Mum and Yapple, you know, we're on the road to treaty. We have a truth commission. So, you know, everything else is, you know, our progress in terms of progressing our rights, you know, in Victoria is, you know, is, you know, is always on the cusp of, on the cutting edge of getting to where we want to get to. But it just seems like some of these governments are still back, they're still 20 years behind or they're still lagging behind, dragging the chain. But, yeah, there was 75 gigalitres of water, savings of water there, that, um, you know, and they found another two gigalitres of water. But we, we haven't received one drop of that water at mm-hmm. all. Um, so, no, we've, we've, we've called the government out on it, Victorian government. So, yeah, we just, you know, we'll wait and see now what they come up with. And um, then, we'll, yeah, we'll go at them again. We'll continue to keep pressuring um, these governments to, um, yeah, you know, like that water, we, we were, you know, prior to colonisation, we were 100% water managers, owners, stewards of waterways. And now, you know, within the basin, we, we own, our people own 0.12% yeah. of the water in the basin. So it's a, it's a national disgrace. Um, and, you know, but we you know, we will never give up the, the fight for water rights and water justice for our people. You're listening to The Mission. My name is Daniel. I'm speaking with Taddy Taddy man, Brendan Kennedy, uh, about cultural flows in the Murray-Darling Basin and the lack of action by government and by the lack of action from people like the Minister for Resources and Water, um, Keith Pitt, who is not acting in good faith when it comes to dealing with First Nations people along the Murray. Um, just before I let you go, Brendan, uh, just want to make it very clear. This is, you know, we, we, we recognise and you recognise the importance of of irrigation, you recognise the importance of the Murray Daly Basin being a fruit food bowl for the for the for the country. But all you are asking for is just a little bit of equity. Yeah, you know, we in the, within the Murray Darling Basin, you know, and we have the highest population Aboriginal people um, yep. in Australia that live in the Murray Darling Basin. But we have, you know, the Murray Darling Basin produces, you know, a high percentage of Australia's food. So we, we're not saying, you know, stop irrigation or stop farming or stop food production. But what we're saying is, you know, um, afford rights, water rights for our people. You know, we deserve to, to be water owners and, 
have access to um, cultural water um, in our own countries, and um, you know that's what we're that's what we're seeking is that there be water. Um, Alex set aside set aside and allocated to all the nations, the First Nations within the within the basin, um, and that's to be for perpetuity. Um, so you know that's where we're striving for is that uh, our people have. We have our water, you know, because all Aboriginal people are water people in the basin, yep. and uh, our cultures are, you know, are dictated and and informed by our, our waterways. So you know, we 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 deserve. It's about time that you know our water was handed back to us. And at the end of the day, if you know, if we, if we get those cultural flows happening again, the entire community up there benefits both black and white. And so, um, look, Brendan, just keep fighting the good fight. We'll keep in touch. It's a very important issue to, to, to me as a as a river person myself. And I just thank you for the tremendous work the, that you do and we'll um, catch up with you somewhere downstream again. Oh, we will. We'll meet again. We'll talk again in the future. Thanks, Daniel. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. 25 to 8 this Tuesday evening, you're listening to The Mission on Triple R 102.7 FM. Now, sticking with issues of land and water for the second bit of the show, the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations is the statewide body that convenes and advocates for the rights and interests of traditional owners while progressing wider social, economic, environmental and cultural objectives. As the only organisation of its kind in Australia, the Federation was established by Victorian traditional owners back in 2013 to advance shared interest in government policy and political engagement. Now, just over a week ago, the Federation launched the Victorian traditional owner cultural landscape strategy. The strategy provides a framework and tangible actions which will underpin work by the Department of Environmental Land and Water uh, and Planning and Parks Victoria on future forest and parks management and decision-making, including policy and legislative reform. Paul Payton is the CEO of the Federation, and Paul is a proud Gunai Monaro Gundijamara man who is passionate about the preservation, continuation and promotion of Aboriginal cultures, so he's in the right job. And I'm very happy to say that he's on the line with us now. Paul, welcome to the mission. Uh, thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here with you this evening. First of all, tell us about um, a little bit more about the Federation itself. Um, who do you represent and, and, and what work do you do? I gave a bit of a spiel there, but um, who better than sure. you to tell us uh, the, the, the work that the Federation encompasses? Sure. Um, the Federation, as you said, you know, developed in 2013, and we, we, uh, we're an advocacy body um, set up by traditional owners in Victoria to advocate for their rights and amplify their voices. Um, in the areas of, I guess, policy and, and legislative reform. So um, we uh, will advocate to government where we see that uh, traditional owner rights and interests aren't aren't being addressed or um, supported, uh, and we'll work uh, with government to be able to, uh, I guess, uh, shift the the, um, the the landscape in regards to, to policy and so forth. So we work with traditional owners across the state. We have a, a membership base um, uh, made up of the six, uh, six out of the uh, 11 recognised groups 
um, but we also work with many of the other groups who um, are working with us on various strategies and, and so forth. So we have uh, working relationships with, with all of the groups across the state to, to advance those interests. So this strategy um, comes at a very important time in the history of this state around truth-telling and the development of uh, treaty and, and making sure that uh, uh, various groups across the state are represented in, as part of that treaty process. In terms of the strategy itself, the uh, um, the what was the what was the process that was undertaken to to develop the strategy? What sort of uh, consultation did you take? Um, who else did you speak to about the development of the strategy? Sure. Well, the, the strategy is is the first of its kind in Australia, and it was was it was born out of um, the the modernisation of the the Commonwealth and Victorian government's modernisation of the regional forest agreements, um, and. We'd recently, um, traditional owners had recently uh, developed the cultural fire strategy back in uh, 2017, mm. and um, and then uh, the regional forest agreements uh, modernisation came along and and uh, was put to traditional owners that um, perhaps you know we needed uh, a forest strategy and 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 traditional owners sort of response to that was that. that our worldview is is probably a little bit different to that. We we see cultural landscapes. We see a more holistic. Um, to, I guess we see the environment, the world around us in a, in, a, in a different way, and we needed to address uh, that in the way that we see the world. So uh, rather than uh, simply um, defining uh, the strategy or you know, uh, scoping the strategy just to focus on forests, we. Um, we said, well, let's let's reflect at the way that we see the world and develop a, a cultural landscape strategy, which is is um, really I guess it underpins the way that traditional owners see the world and 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 reflects how um, we've managed the land for 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 generations and and what we've been saying to government for ever since colonisation that um, this is the way that. Um, we managed the land, and this has sustained us for such a long time, and and we can see the damage being um, impacted on 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 country, and we want to be able to share that knowledge and and you know and and I guess uh, reinstate um, those practices and res- restore and, and redress some of those those harms that we see from our point of view. You've got a great definition of uh, cultural landscape in the strategy itself. It, it reads, refers to the dynamic interactions between people and country, includes the natural environment, spiritual and traditional knowledge of that environment, and the cultural practices and activities applied there. So, um, you know, I was just speaking before to um, Brendan Kelly, who's a tatty tatty man, and he was talking about mm-hmm. um, some sacred wetlands up around uh, Robinvale, and he was describing to us very clearly that. You know, those wetlands are, of course, of tremendous environmental importance, but they are also of tremendous cultural significance to the Taddy Taddy uh, people up there. And that's why he's acting to, to try and save them and, and, and get them replenished. I guess that is what we're talking about here when we're referring to cultural landscape. Well, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, the, the way that we, we um, interact and understand the landscape and understand through the, the, the seasonal knowledge that uh, is old held within within um, traditional owner uh, knowledges, um, the way that we, you know, those sort of seasonal indicators that see the changes in the landscape and uh, and the responsibility that traditional owners hold in, uh, in, in ensuring that parts of 
parts of country, the way that um, that uh, responsibility, cultural responsibility, obligations to look after country, um, yeah, have have underpinned the way that we uh, see see the landscape uh, and and sustained uh, the landscape and ensure that it's uh, it's uh, balanced. It's that uh, it's not uh, over. Uh, overused and, and those types of approaches have really um, been refined over, over many, many years and um, different practices and different approaches to, to land management have have perhaps gone gone against um, some of those, you know, those ways that we, we see the landscape and the way that it thrives. Um, mm. So, you know, like I said, we want to be able to be able to share that knowledge that's been accumulated over a long period of time to be, to be able to restore uh, country and we'd be able to, you know, restore uh, knowledge and restore um, those obligations into the way that we uh, manage the land going forward. Uh, you're listening to Triple R 102.7 FM uh, on a show called The Mission. My name is Daniel. I'm speaking with the CEO of the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations, uh, Paul Payton. He's the CEO, and um, we're talking to him about a new strategy that was uh, launched not too long ago, the Victorian Traditional Owner Cultural Landscapes uh, Strategy. Now, Paul, the strategy has five main tenets or, or goals or aims. Um, one is restoring the knowledge system. Two is to strengthen traditional owner resilience, three, to enable traditional owner cultural landscape planning, three, um, four, <laughs> learn how to count, Daniel, <laughs> strengthening traditional owner national resilience, and five, uh, um, traditional owner cultural objectives of knowledge and practice in the management of public land. Um, the one that I'm um, interested, just for the sake of this interview, they're all interesting, of mm-hmm. course, um, uh, tell me about strengthening traditional owner nation resilience. Sure. Um, I guess uh, traditional owner nations have have, have um, formed the way that we um, we uh, our law underpins our law. The way that we um, uh, I guess have uh, interacted with other nations, whether that be through ceremony and, and, and marriage and and, uh, and trade and those types of things. And uh, and the nations were were obviously heavily impacted by. By colonisation and, and and what we're setting about through um, and there, there are um, some broader um, programs happening at the moment that uh, support the treaty process as well, which is a nation building uh, program, which is designed to be able to um, restore that 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 strength, that cohesiveness, that resilience that um, nations hold by. By being strong in, in culture, being able to practice culture, um, and restore um, those those um, the, the knowledge and practice into those nations, and build nations that are going to be uh, resilient in 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 a modern society, and and nations that are going to be able to um, support their community um, and provide um, um, provide support in a in a in sort of Cultural, um, health, uh, educative, economic way that um, can then you know one of the other the other goals is uh, traditional owner resilience and that's individual resilience and that will be supported by that nation resilience by having that um, collective nationhood which will um, will contribute to um, how traditional owners 
uh, you know, I guess, um, what's the word? Uh, our traditional owners are, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, I'm, I'm a bit stuffed for which what able, I want to say, but negotiate. Uh, able, able to be negotiate. in negotiate in, in Sit at uh, the table. treaty. Yeah, yep. negotiate a treaty as we work towards treaty. Um, you know, nations need to be strong um, to be able to um, negotiate uh, outcomes, good outcomes um, for their community. So uh, that's, that's, that will underpin um, their ability uh, to negotiate with, with government to get um, good outcomes um, through a treaty negotiation. Yeah, it's never been more important in this time of uh, treaty and truth that there is resilience amongst uh, traditional owners and um, all various uh, mobs around the place uh, at the moment. Uh, before I let you go, Paul, um, what commitment has been made by government to implement the strategy? I know that uh, the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning is is a partner. I know Parks Victoria is a partner as well. Is there any allocation of additional resources to assist traditional owner groups to play an ongoing role in the strategy, or is that still to be negotiated? Yeah, when we announced the um, or had the strategy launched uh, last week, uh, the Minister for the Environment, uh, Minister D'Ambrosio, announced uh, $11 million of funding to, to support the implementation of the strategy as well as to support um, the, the traditional owner corporations to be able to um, uh, meet the demands uh, of, of this work uh, through mm-hmm. uh, four years of um, positions, um, traditional owner positions within the corporations to, to do the work. So there is clearly a, a commitment um, and by, by the government to, to support this work um, and uh, it's only through that commitment that we're going to be able to, to fully implement and see the strategy um, reach its full potential. Well, thank you very much for your uh, time tonight, Paul. Um, thank you for, for your work. Um, you're doing tremendous work. You're in North Melbourne, aren't you, the, the Federation? That's right. Yeah, yeah yep, the corporation. And the strategy uh, is on our website if anyone's interested in um, checking it out. What's the website address? Uh, www.fvtoc.com.au. Cool. Well, I know for a fact that your building is opposite uh, my favourite uh, coffee place in, in North Melbourne, so perhaps sometimes we could uh, catch up for a coffee there and uh, chew the fat a little bit more. But um, thank you so much for your time this evening. That'd be great. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>